Welcome to Meowcore, the podcast where I, Laura, show my cool friend Panya the music that I like. Meow! That is mostly uh, kitty hard rock and uh, heavy metal. Um, I, th- I see she's in the room. How are you doing? I'm here. I'm awake. <laughs> Present. Okay. Present and accounted for. You remember this song from the 70s called All Right Now by a band called Free. I might remember the song if I played it. I don't think I would have ever known who it was by. There are a lot of songs I'm familiar with that I didn't. I don't know who made them. It goes, all right now, baby, it's all yes. right yes. now. I do know that song. I did not ever know who had made that song until now. It's a, it's a nice name for a band. I'm sometimes tempted to call them The Free, but they are just called Free. Um, and uh, they have a singer called Paul Rogers. I love that man's songwriting. I love his voice. So we're going to listen to two of his bands today, Free and Bad Company. Ah, I do know Bad Company. Mm-hmm. What do you know? Do you remember? I just Do you know. remember what you know? <laughs> I don't remember what I know. It's buried in the back shelves of my memory. From I, The name is familiar. That's kind of all I got right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got, they got pretty big. They were managed. Bad Company was managed by Led Zeppelin's manager. Mm. Um, so that person would have had experience mm-hmm. in getting them places. One interesting thing about him, there, there were many interesting things, like connections to the mafia, former wrestler. What? Very, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, very imposing uh, stature, a big man, scary man. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing to me is that uh, they say that until then, in the UK and the US at least, uh, bands would only get 50% of concert revenue. The rest would be for the promoter. And uh, this gentleman made sure that Zeppelin got 90%. I mean, that's that's good. And yet, without knowing how much those bring in and where the rest of the money goes and who else is involved in setting up a concert, I don't have any other opinion as to whether the split was better or worse. Mm-hmm. I need more information. Mm-hmm. I need to do some research, but not right now. Yeah. Me too. I wonder how often this is still followed because I've heard people say that it's still 90 to 10, but it is an interesting topic. Mm, yeah, so that that's Led Zeppelin's manager. His name was Peter Grant. But we are still uh, with Free at the start of the 70s. Mm, I won't have time for all right now, but let's go listen to a song from 1970 called Ride on Pony. This one is live. Uh, on a show called Doing Their Thing. Let's listen to Ride On Pony by Free. I feel like that was very, very 70s. Mm-hmm. Bluesy. Mm-hmm. And you can tell the instruments apart. Yeah. Yeah, which is actually kind of nice because I feel like the... The characteristic riff for that song is actually in the bass, not the guitar. Mm, I think they were doing it together. It's hard for me to tell. The lower notes were registering more with me. So that might have been it. 
Might this be the way I'm listening? I think that's what I'm seeing. They're, they're both playing it. Both guitarists are playing it. Okay. okay. I like these these uh, white or beige pants on Paul Rogers. Really nice. I, I appreciate I was thinking that he must have uh, joined the slightly too small shirt club. <laughs> this one's buttoned up, though. Yes, and some of those buttons seem to be um, straining a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've seen appearances where half of them are undone. That's that's he's, he's he has more of a triangle look if you look at him in other videos. Mm-hmm. So they were, as all these other bands, really very influenced by the blues, and uh, Paul Rogers was also into the soul singers. He yeah, that's what I was hearing. He mentioned Wilson Pickett as an influence, so that's what kind of sets him apart from other singers from that time. But it's also just a pretty basic love song. Mm -hmm. There's nothing on that pony. spectacular about the lyrics mm -hmm. in terms of, of standout of the story they're trying to tell. It's pretty simple. And yet it's... um. It's a relaxing kind of groove, you know. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, it's not. There, there's no sudden switches in in the kind of the sound you're listening to. It doesn't suddenly get harsher or heavier. It's just this kind of soothing, peaceful. Like I can picture, oh, rocking in a hammock on an early autumn evening, just listening to that, and and your brain is just softly relaxing from the stress of the week. Mm -hmm. And that's what—that's pretty much what uh, Free and Bad Company are about, and and Paul Rogers from the seventies. It's all very chill. I like that about him. Mm, let's go listen to a song from seventy-three. It's called "Wishing Well" from Heartbreaker. All right, let's listen to "Wishing Well" by Free. His voice sounded different there. On the live recording for the previous song, his voice sounded um, kind of rough and scratchy. Mm -hmm. It had a, an underlying rougher element. It's much smoother here. Mm -hmm. wonder what that caused that. I mean, not that I'm complaining either way. Either is, is interesting. And when you contrast that with the use of things like auto-tune, in the modern era, I think it's very interesting in the modern era. I don't know that, unless they were specifically trading on the scratchiness of his voice, which is a thing that has also happened in the modern era, I don't know that it would have been mm -hmm. permitted exactly. What wouldn't be permitted? The scratchiness, the roughness in the live recording. But what's wrong with it? Nothing. But in the modern era, it's not considered... Uh, artistically acceptable. Oh, well, I, I guess in some genres. Yeah, but not... And and as I say, there are there are artists in the modern era, Macy Gray is one, where the, the sound of their voice that is not 
pure and clear is specifically part of the sound they're trading on. But as a general rule, with the advent of things like autotune and the ability to apply, apply that even in concert, that's not as common. Maybe. And I was just thinking that in the modern world, that scratchiness probably would have been removed from his voice under any circumstances, which I think oh. would be a shame. I see. Well, we we will be listening to a genre where it's actually great to be scratchy. And right. uh, he, they are doing some very eager British blues, after all. And Janis Joplin has opened the doors to singers doing that thing, too. Right? And the male Janis Joplin, too. <laughs> yeah. Adonis. Yes, yes. It just shows how how uh, versatile Paul Rogers is. That his that more is soulful side and the more screamy rough side. Yeah. That is true. Uh, I also noticed, especially when they get to the back third of the song, we've discussed in the past how 70s musicians in particular, musicians in the 70s, uh, tended to at least seem much more spontaneous in concert and in even their studio recordings. And that the the last, I don't know, six or eight lines of this song did kind of sound like somebody just noodling around in the studio. It didn't sound like the sort of lyrics you would write down mm -hmm. as part yep. of the song. It sounded like they were just playing around, and this is the version of playing around they liked best. So that was the one that went on the recording. Which reminds me of a time they were recording another song, um, and they ma made Paul record outside in uh, in the garden of this mansion manor uh, but it was cold so he was improvising at the end and uh, he mentioned something about being cold so that that stayed in the song which song was it i don't remember everybody has a wish everybody has a dream yeah i wish yeah. you well <laughs> but the the way i mean if you just look at it as lyrics, then it's like, okay, fine, this is lyrics. But you listen to the way that he's singing it and the fact that it's actually almost but not quite speech and that it doesn't flow with any of the melodies from before, really. It doesn't. And mm. the, the melodic uh, and lyrical rhyme scheme of this one was something that he clearly stuck to pretty closely. Hmm. There's the he didn't he didn't lean on the rhymes the way some people do, but it's not hard to notice them and it's not hard to notice the. I don't know what the right word is. I'll have to go look up the right word. <laughs> Let me look this up real quick. Uh, metric line. That's the word I want. Ah, uh, it's not actually hard to notice the metric line, the number of syllables per line, mm -hmm. and the way that they're rhymed. He doesn't lean on it, but it's not hard to notice that it's there. I see. I heard this for the first time when I was a teenager, and I was impressed by um, the fact that it's a warning song. Mm -hmm. You're honestly telling a friend that you love that they they should just stop this thing that they're doing. Mm -hmm. But you have understanding for them too, because you say, I know what you're wishing for. You you are hoping for good things. Right. 
but you're not doing the right thing to achieve them. And that ties in with the overall thematics of a lot of songs from this era that, again, we've talked about before because this is, again, the Vietnam War era. And a lot of music and a lot of people were very focused on the idea of peace, of anti-war, you know, love in a peaceful world, he says. And that pretty much sums up that entire movement. (laughs) Yeah. And yet, unlike a lot of other songs of the era, the song itself is not focused on that as a theme. It's focused on the fact that a person desires it and that that desire is comprehended and shared, but that the singer doesn't seem to think that the person they're speaking to is doing the right things to achieve that. Mm -hmm. The way that you're going about it is wrong. You refuse to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a teenager being very impressed by that because his diction is so clear. When I was younger, my English wasn't that good, but he made it very clear. And when I heard, put down your gun, you might shoot yourself, I was like, ooh, this is not like other songs. So I remembered it. Yeah. That was free. That was, those were two, the two songs that we have time for in free. And I don't know free as much as I know Bad Company. So we'll move on to Bad Company now. Okay. Mm. That were a band that seemed to have a bit more success and had Peter Grant as manager. Um, they made a good amount of money. They had their own private jet to fly between shows. Oh my. I wonder how that changes the whole touring, uh, like the, not aesthetic, not camaraderie, but experience. How does flying places change the experience? Hmm. Versus being on a bus. It might let you sleep longer if you're not, if you can't really sleep on a tour bus. I don't know why sleeping on a plane would be any better. No, you just get off that plane because it travels much quicker and you get into a hotel and you crash. That's true. On the other hand, I've seen what the inside of tour buses look like even from then. And depending on when you're traveling and how how you do or don't sleep, I'd rather be on a tour bus than a plane, even if it takes longer. Planes Hmm. are, I mean, even I'm sure private planes, you don't really move around a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are small. They're, they're, you know, it's not like flying economy on a modern plane, but still, it's not likely to be Tony Stark notwithstanding the sort of thing where a pole comes out of the floor and you're dancing on the plane. <laughs> yeah, and also in those times, I don't think they used the the time they saved for sleeping. I think they were spending more time partying. Yeah, especially in those times. Mm-hmm. All right, so which version of the next song are we going to listen to? Ready for Love from the album Bad Company, 74. Okay, do we want the remaster? Because it appears to be shorter. Oh, let me check that. Ready for Love. Yeah, play the remaster. It's fine. All right. Let's listen to Ready for Love, the 2015 remaster by Bad Company. 
the way that one ends kind of makes me wonder what the longer one is like. That one kind of wanders off into noodling too, but what the hell did they do for the other three minutes in the other version? Oh, I don't know. Might have to go find out later. Yeah, I'm okay with remastered ones, except for one band, which is Whitesnake. I don't know what Daddy Coverdale is doing. Constantly redoing his songs from 30 years ago. That's a different topic. That's but a different, that's a whole different uh, episode, I think. He was just very mad about it recently. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Poor thing. Do you need a, do you need a cuddle? <laughs> just make him make him stop he's like constantly re-recording remixing remastering white snake stuff and just just leave it it's good well we're not talking about them we're talking about bad company right now mm -hmm. it's okay it's yeah. okay <laughs> there you go ready for love very touching i, yeah. I remember i really yeah. liked it when i was 18 but again it's a pretty simplistic kind of song not again that that's bad but it does not it does not come to the complexity of some of the other music we're listening we've listened to mm -hmm. yeah even though uh you will hear bad company referred to as a super group because they had um paul rogers from free uh the the drummer of free and they had a gentleman that came from Motehupo, which was a, a big band at the time, and a gentleman that came from King Crimson, a big progressive rock band. But we're not uh, marveling at virtuosity here, usually. Well, I don't know that that's true, actually, because, look, human nature has a tendency to look upon well-executed complexity as a virtuoso performance and that makes sense but what i think a lot of people don't realize is that well-executed simplicity can in and of itself be quite difficult especially when you don't get bored listening to it that and uh, honestly, the human temptation is to add flourishes, is to increase the complexity. And so to maintain a certain kind of simplicity is also in its own way just as difficult. But there is a distinct difference between it's simple because this is as much as I can achieve and it's simple because that's the goal I'm aiming for. And it's the mm. latter that I'm speaking of as being difficult. Mm -hmm. To be simple, to say exactly what you want to say and no more. And I was also thinking as I was listening that just as when we were listening to Free, the individual instruments are distinct and both the bass and the guitar are carrying the same riff. And I was thinking that perhaps one of the reasons I'm noticing the bass more is because in more modern music, I'm not used to hearing the bass at all. Not as a distinct individual element of the sound. It's there, obviously but I don't hear it in the same way. So because I can hear it, I feel that it's standing out to me more. 
and you think you're not hearing it in modern music because you've never been you your ear has never been trained no actually i think i'm not hearing it in modern music because the mixing is different yeah yeah that's one thing and the other thing is the bass sounds a bit different but the mixing is huge a huge part right of it. and i think that I don't know if this is a shift in the way that music is mixed, in the shift the way the music is written, a natural shift over time, but I do feel that of the sorts of music I have tended to listen to, which involves a bass guitar rather than the two guitars working together or playing the same riff i think the shift has been for the bass guitar to become linked in with the drum line to be echoing mm -hmm, what yeah. the drum line or leading what the drum line is doing mm. and yeah. that will change both my ability to hear it and what there is to be heard yeah yeah you're right and also, I guess, the disappearance of jazz as an influence in most hard rock and metal after the 70s. Yeah, which is a real shame, honestly. <laughs> You'll hear some of it in, in progressive rock and metal. But, yeah, bass... Well, then jazz as a genre has generated as many little subgenres as metal has. And some of them are quite odd. Very good, but still not at all what, what you might have thought of as jazz in the 70s. Which, mm. incidentally, just to really warp everybody's brain, was 50 years ago. Yes, it really was. Yes. Okay. Mm. Let's get our minds off of that and do another song. I don't want to think about that. Don't worry. Um... But I just remembered another thing that could have influenced uh, how people record and how we hear bass sound. In the first years of the 80s, the end of the 70s, um, a new sort of guitar hero arose in Eddie Van Halen. Yes. And he was very loud and very electric. He was not bluesy. He was and that would tend to drown out anything to do with the bass. Basses are not loud by their nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Though I would have to confirm that by listening to a, a, a bit of Van Halen again. Well, maybe we can do an episode on that later. I mm -hmm. would not object yeah. to listening to Van Halen. We will because there's a lot of guitarists that show him as uh, the, the really the originator of the, the new guitar hero. Thing. Yes, ma'am. All right. Something to look forward to. Mm -hmm. Did you hear in this in this one in Ready for Love how it, it, the, in, in two lines back to back uh, Paul's voice cracked, but they kept it. Yeah, I did kind of hear that, and that again goes back to what I was saying before this song about the way that things are and aren't allowed. Mm -hmm. I think that um, modern recording the. The studio, the the publisher, the the recording company, whatever, would have insisted that that be re-recorded. Would have insisted that that wasn't acceptable. Mm-hmm. So it seems, but it serves a purpose here because he wants to be vulnerable in this song. Right. And it makes perfect sense. It's very interesting. Okay, 
Let's see what we're doing next. I think next is my two morning songs. Yes. This is where okay. I say thank you to a certain uh, radio DJ from 20 years ago. His name was Moni Panchev from, from Bulgaria. He got me these three songs back to back. A song called Come Together in the Morning by Free. And then these two, Morning Sun and Early in the Morning by uh, Bad Company. I had my cassette ready to record from the radio because this is how we got our new music back then. Right. I remember doing that. I had these great compilations. Amazing. Mm -hmm. So I had Paul Rogers singing to me about these beautiful mornings for three songs in a row. And then I lost that cassette and I, I tried to trace what those songs were. Now I finally found them. So let's listen to Morning Sun first from the album Burning Sky 77. Let's listen to Morning Sun by Bad Company. That was a flute. Yes, they had a, a lady there playing the flute. And it's, I welcome it. It sounds great. Oh, it goes with the theme of the song, really. The whole aesthetic of the song. Yeah, it's like a gentle wind. I don't know about gentle, but um, that's not quite... I can't think of the right words to describe, but it fits. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that would work very, very, work very well as an alarm, but it would be a nice <laughs> song to wake up to. Yeah, even if you have a work day ahead of you, if you have time for... A morning song by Paul Rogers. Right. Right. Something to drive to if you have a rough morning commute because it might help you relax and not want to shove your car up somebody else's tailpipe. <laughs> yeah. There's many of us for whom the very our very alarm is the beginning of our stress for the day. That's very true. That's very true. I've had work days where I just, I, it wakes me up and I, I'm certainly, I've got palpitations. It shocks you awake, kind of. But then that's... <sighs> Having lived next door to a rooster for uh, some time, uh, I can tell you two things. First thing I can tell you is that roosters don't care what time of day it is. They're going to crow when they're going to crow. And the second is that as shocking as modern alarms can be, they are no more or less shocking than a rooster crowing at stupid o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but when did you live close to a, a rooster? Now? No, that was the uh, previous house, the one that we lived in before the pandemic. Um, I don't know how legal it was for them to have the rooster. I don't think it was, you know, outright illegal. Uh, but they did keep, our neighbors did keep chickens in the backyard. Um, mm -hmm. And apart from the rooster occasionally crowing at extremely odd times, uh, the chickens were much less irritating than the little dog that barked at every possible thing. Yeah. Didn't really have any, did, they didn't, you know, smell terrible or anything. We never got any eggs out of the situation, but that's probably because we never asked. <laughs> Yeah, so I it music does help me calm down, and uh, I think that would help. I'm gonna start doing that. Just set up this kind of 
calm morning playlist while you get ready for work. Mm-hmm. Yep. I might have to be careful about that. Not going into the office because the commuter train when I get when it gets to the end of the line, that's where I get off. I don't have to watch for a stop. But coming back, if I get lost mm. in a book or in music, I will miss my stop, and then I will miss the next stop, and then my husband <laughs> will spend 30 minutes coming to pick me up, and then we have to go get the car, and that was just a disaster. Oh, man, the <laughs> only thing that mitigated that whole business was that it was a really nice evening, and we weren't in a hurry. Yeah. But that was a mess. So, you know, when you're when you're planning your soothing music playlist for your evening commute, make sure you don't soothe yourself into missing what you're supposed to be doing. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And uh let's do early in the morning from an album that came out 2 years after that, Desolation Angels. Let's listen to Early in the Morning, the 2009 remaster by Bad Company. It's a very interesting song to have right after the previous one because the previous one was very bluesy very slow very jazz this one was much harder we, Is it, we it close harder? out well harder might not be the right word but if we close out this song with the crying of electric guitars and I think of that as being somewhat harder than what the previous song sounded like. I could be wrong in the word I'm using. Yeah, we could be getting louder now that it's the end of the 70s. Yeah. Right. There's definitely, that one was definitely much more characterized by um, a more up, uh, a faster tempo. Not more upbeat, but a faster tempo and the wailing of the electric guitars there. But they're both still basically talking about kind of the same thing, about how good it is to wake up in the morning with someone that you love and the the sort of peace that that is. Mm -hmm. He talks about, what did he say about worthwhile? That night and day are worthwhile. It makes my life worthwhile. To feel you around me makes my life worthwhile night and day. And it's the, it's this around me, I think, that had me thinking decades ago. That it's he's almost going down somewhere to worship. In peace. Could be. What it made me think of is... Uh, there's a, a, a subset of us uh, on the internet who are uh, not neurotypical and especially for neurodivergent introverts such as myself there's a kind of being with people hanging out that we refer to as being alone together mm -hmm. you're in the same room you're enjoying each other's company you're sharing bits of what you're doing but you're not doing the same thing you're not playing a game you're not playing the same game with each other you're not even necessarily watching the same thing you may both have headphones on uh, one of you may be reading or stitching or but you're still around each other and that's mm -hmm. kind of what that line suggests to me to feel you around me 
that, that you're having that time together that doesn't necessarily include explicitly devoting one's attention to the other. Hmm. But knowing that when you should look up from whatever it is you're doing to share whatever thoughts you've just had, that person will be more or less available to provide you with their attention and vice versa. I'd like to have a company of friends like this. It's very nice. It's very nice. But it kind of reminds me of uh, having an online friend. Because you're sharing, but you kind of... Alone it does together, depend again. on how your online friendships work. If your online friendships are braided in through a video game that you play together like Halo or Final Fantasy, then that's a bit more interactive. Uh, but it's true that I've been in online friendships where we would get into group chats or voice chats and there would be long periods of time where no one was saying anything because we were all doing our own thing and then somebody would, would run across something or have a thought or get into trouble in the game and there'd be a conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, there'd be there'd be the sudden spate of swearing as something tries to eat you in the whatever you're doing and somebody else is going, well, what just happened? And you explain it to them and they played the game so you know what you're talking about and, and then mm-hmm. you talk about that and compare it to other games you've played and then that winds into another conversation and before you know it, you've all chattered for three hours and it's time to go to bed. But it started <laughs> with silence. It started with the the being together in each other's company. And I'm absolutely certain that there are folk that have watched uh, my husband and I out on what we'd refer to as a date and gone, well, but he's looking at his phone and she's reading a book and how is this possibly a date? And yeah, these us, two must be miserable. Yeah, yeah, and we're going, no, this is this is exactly what we want. When he finds a thing on the internet, on his phone, he shares it with me and we talk about it. And if I have a thought about the book I'm reading, I share it with him and we talk about it and we end up having these long, rambly conversations that do run two and three and four and five hours that we pick up again a couple of hours later because somebody's had a new thought. Mm-hmm. And they start with something like a song we're listening to and then they move on into history and they move on into sociology and they move on into politics and then they shift back into what we've been reading and you know, hours and hours and hours, and my husband and I have been together one way or the other for nearly 20 years, and we still have these conversations. We have not even begun to exhaust all of the things that we could talk about and all of the ideas we have about them and want to share with each other, and we don't even always agree. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we do, and we end up basically repeating the same things at each other, and then that makes us laugh. And other times, we quite firmly don't agree. And we have to trace down what is the root cause of this disagreement. Are we disagreeing because, for example, we have different sources of information? That's happened quite a lot over the last three or four years with various things. He's looking at one source of information, and I'm looking at one, and they're in direct conflict with each other. And once we figure out that's why we don't agree with each other, then we can compare notes from our different sources of information and decide which ones we actually believe, which ones we agree with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this this whole song kind of makes me think about the way that, that I am with the people that I really care about and that whole being alone together and the whole circumstance of finding comfort and company even if you're not speaking to each other 
this being alone together also makes me think of um, the neurodivergent reluctance to do small talk and uh, yeah yeah because if we don't have anything to say to share right now we don't have to be awkward we can just go we into just don't talk in, yeah individual things and it's not an awkward silence it's a very comfortable silence right right and I know for myself I know for myself and I think this is true for other neurodivergent people a small talk frequently feels like a combination of telling lies and filling up the awkward silence mm -hmm. someone asks you how are you and you feel they don't really want to know how I really am they don't want to know that I didn't feel like that I had to scrounge extra mental spoons this morning just to take a shower they don't care yeah, they don't want to hear right they don't want to hear about the hawk that I saw spinning over the highway they just want to hear oh I'm fine that's all they want to hear and uh, how are you and which is also not very honest and they'll say oh, I'm fine yeah they don't give you any more details which incidentally is what led me to do what I did at the top of this episode and say I'm here because to me that's a more honest answer and non and, and neurodivergent people very quickly pick on pick up on the fact that that tends to mean I've made it out of bed I've gotten dressed I can communicate with people things are good and if I don't say I'm here I'm probably telling you something truthful about how weird or crappy my morning has been mm -hmm. yeah I'm here is a bit of an achievement yeah yeah we have one more song left but uh all right it's a, it's a performance from 2010 so I'll tell you oh a bit about what happened in between pretty recent mm, it this one by the way he said lazy days drift away in time and I was just watching documentaries and interviews with them and I, I see how overworked and exhausted they were in the 70s. Sometimes mm. they had two albums out in the same uh, year. Constantly That's a touring. hell of an album cycle. Mm -hmm. And they were asking for a bit of a break when they are neither recording nor touring and they were not given that opportunity. Um, mm. So and this they isn't were... just a song describing something good that is happening. This is a plea. This is a what I wish for. Or maybe uh, toward the end of the 70s they had a bit more time, but Free and Bad Company in, at the, in the first half of the 70s, lazy days drifting away in time was really a dream. Yeah. Wow. That's and you're rough. also at the same time getting ravaged by alcohol and drugs, traveling right. all the time. Yeah, And even if you have a lazy day, the way that alcohol or drugs changes your perception of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not really living them. Well, maybe you are really living them, but there's... Except maybe for certain drugs, when you're doing... When you're drinking heavily, when, when you're doing drugs the circumstances under which that occurs tend to be fairly frenetic. Mm -hmm. And so even if you're a day when you're not oh, uh, recording or writing music or actively touring, if you're out partying and drinking, that's not a lazy day. 
Yeah. So 1980 rolls around and uh, John Lennon is killed and John mm. Bonham, the drummer of Zeppelin, dies. And uh, everybody's grieving, including their manager, who kind of goes into seclusion and is not this dominant figure who is driving them forward and solving the disagreements they have. Because they are several strong characters in there, but he's the strongest. So they end up fighting about a lot of things and uh, Paul Rogers, the singer, leaves and uh, he wanted to just be in his villa and rest and then Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin said, let's make a band and Paul was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very tired and Jimmy said, we'll make a, an album, go on tour make a second album, go on tour and that's it So with this promise, Paul agreed and they created a band together called The Firm that's a very odd name for a band, in my opinion, <laughs> especially yeah. in that era. Are they a firm or are they people who are firm? I'll, I'll have to check that out. I haven't listened to the firm yet. If it's yet. the firm, that to me implies uh, the mafia. But I may be reading oh. wrong. Oh, might be. They did have a, a manager who... Uh, who didn't hide his uh, connections to the Mafia. So it could be a bit of a hint at, at that. Okay. And then um, I think it was in the 90s or the early noughties when uh, Paul was co collaborating with uh, Queen. Mm. The the boys from Queen were always big, uh, big company fans. Freddie loved uh, the way Paul used his voice. Mm. And so they went on on tour under the under the name Queen plus Paul Rogers. Queen was oh. playing Bad Company songs, and Paul was singing a few Queen songs. That sounds like it would have been lovely. Mm-hmm. They did sound great. They did. They had a good partnership. Mm. And uh, now we come to a, a reunion show, a concert at Wembley in two hundred two thousand and ten. We have at least three people from the original Bad Company here singer, guitarist, the drummer who was also in the free right. so at least three people from the 70s you'll see in this performance Feel Like Making Love, live at Wembley 2010 Ah, they're probably their most popular and well-known song mm -hmm. Yeah, still from the 70s Alright Let's listen to Feel Like Making Love live by Bad Company from 2010 Let's just go find the rest of that concert and listen to it. There are some concerts that are recorded that you don't get the sense of being there. You don't. Mm -hmm. This one is the opposite of that. There was, I don't know how better to describe it other than even through the video, there was that sense of audience connection. There was that sense of the band members being connected to each other. It was all that electric excitement of being at a show with music you love. Mm -hmm. Also, I don't know if he extemporized that harmonica bit or it was already always there. I don't remember that. No, but he, then I, he basically I played the guitar solo on harmonica. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. 
which was fine. And that's a, one of those other wonderful things about live concerts, especially with older bands, older musicians. Their music is so familiar, so well known to the folk who go to those concerts, people our age, our parents' age, that they can do all kinds of fun things with it and the audience does not care. The audience will revel in it just as much as they do. They can play with the music. Yeah. And with this particular change, uh, looks like Paul was in, in great vocal shape because in the yeah. same breath where he finished the harmonica, he started singing. Mm-hmm. That requires some uh, practiced lung capacity. And again, a very calm song. Yeah, which is odd because it does have, it is more, uh, it's got a, a, a sturdy beat to it, but it's not, it's not to the walls loud in the mm -hmm. way that some metal music is in the way that Sabbath was, for example. It's not like that. Yeah. And in conjunction with their other music, I'm thinking, like, I had never actually heard any other Bad Company songs to know that they were Bad Company before today. Mm -hmm. And now that I've heard this one in conjunction with other songs, I'm seeing a through line from at least the mid-70s or the early 70s of the the mood they're evoking in their music. Because on the one hand, you, you go feel like making love and you're going, ooh, sex, bump and grind. And then you compare that to their other songs and no, maybe that's not what they're really getting at. Maybe they're really getting at making love mm -hmm. and not in the sense of, of, you know, hot and sweaty, but that sort of, of gentle, slow, peaceful, curling up kind of thing. Yeah. And that connects in with the previous songs of, of just the sheer pleasure of being with someone you care about, whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. Even though it has this bit of, during the refrain, it goes, it goes a bit of, uh, da -da -dum, da -da -dum. Yeah. But you, it, it's not, it's not startling. It's, it's just a bout of desire. And then the desire stays there, but it's calmer. Yeah. It's not that I'm going to rip your clothes off and shove you up against the wall kind of making love, which has its place. But that's not what this is talking about. Yeah. This is this is talking about the hours lying in bed or lying on the couch and and slowly kissing each other and slowly doing the things and and ascending to that peak of desire and then it passes and you're still curled up together. Mhm. Mm Again, something that Paul Rogers does a bit differently from the rest of his peers, and that's nice. Mm-hmm, that's true. That's true. Mm, and these days, Paul is still active, and his new album came out yesterday, I think. I'm gonna oh have to go listen to that. Brand new music. Mm -hmm. I do appreciate that uh, older musicians from the 70s, from the 80s, are still making new music. And I feel like that stands in stark contrast to not just younger musicians in general, but to this concept that's extant among mm, younger fans, I think, as much as anything else, about bands that are manufactured. 
and I've never quite been clear on what that was supposed to mean exactly. Or an industry plant. Yeah, I've never been quite clear on what that was supposed to mean. There are things that are done in recording, such as autotune, that I don't actually care for. But I don't think of that in the sense that the musicians themselves or the music that they're, they've created or, or, or are working with is bad. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. But then, rather like publishing books, the both the advent of the internet at all and the way that the internet has evolved has allowed a lot more people to put their music out into the world or to continue to put their music out into the world regardless of what big name recording companies or publishers should want mm -hmm. which is a great thing yeah i think yeah. the more art there is in the world the better and the more independent in his decisions an artist gets to be, the better. Okay, that is Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers' two first bands for you. Tell me, a, give me a kitten update. What are the kitties doing? Well, Marari just walked in and has sat down in her loaf pan and is telling me meow meow. Would you like to meow meow into the microphone, young lady? No, I picked up her box and now she is sulking. Hmm. She had her third birthday just a few days ago. Uh, we didn't throw her any kind of big party the way some cat parents do, but she got some extra treats. And now she's just kind of sitting here in the box on my lap, being petted and approving in general of this state of affairs. <laughs> yep. Jana and Buddy are up in the cat tree. And I believe... Murray's not a light kitty. Yeah, John is dreaming. I can see her toes twitching. <laughs> it's like there's this one, there's two paws and her tail sticking out of the hole, and I can see them twitching slightly. I'm not sure what Buddy's doing. All I can see is his rear end. Oh, toe stretch. It looks like he's about to roll himself off the top of the tree, actually, which is going to be really embarrassing for him if he pulls it off. Why, is he asleep too? I think so. Oh, I oh think no. so. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it would be far from the first time someone has fallen from the top of that tree. And cats are cats. I think it'll be, I think they'll be okay. It's a bit short of a distance to get their feet under them, but not long enough of a distance for them to be, I think, badly hurt unless they land really wrong. Mm -hmm. By the way, what do you say to people who don't like hearing uh, about, who don't like hearing, this is my child or I'm a, I'm a cat parent? I ignore them. I don't say anything to them. They're not worth my time and attention. <laughs> Good. I mean, I don't... I do think that the way that people can say that has an effect on how I react to them, not just uh, bad reactions to I'm a cat parent, but simply the way that you might say I'm a cat parent. Some people say it as a way of almost rubbing your nose in the fact that they don't want to have uh, human children. Mm -hmm. Other people say it as a sort of a matter-of-fact thing. You know, I, don't, I don't have human children, I have cat children. My children have four feet. You know, I much prefer the latter to the former. Yeah, it's not, it's not trying to start a fight. 
Yeah, no, and there are, I have encountered them. There are folk out there for whom uh, child-free is a battle cry. And they will say, my children have four feet or I am a cat parent, uh, trying to provoke something. And I decline to be provoked. <laughs> I decline to be provoked. I do not wish to have that argument. It goes into places where I don't think I share perspectives with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I see. I do if... understand that be the people who are oppressed um, get angry and may start getting aggressive. I've done that too, but right. I don't want to start. I don't want to provoke anyone on on my choice of not having children either. Yeah, right. Well, and most of the people that I have ever encountered who use child free as a battle cry, it, that choice that they have made has very little to do with oppression. It has to do with a. It's one of two things. It either has to do with a belief that the world is already overcrowded and cannot support any more humans. And I can have that discussion, but I don't think we'll like the outcome. Or, and these are the ones that really irritate me, it has to do with people who, for whatever reason, have the idea that children are disgusting. That they oh. are... Uh, I can't find uh, before the watershed words to encapsulate the way that they perceive children. But uh, one of their favorite phrases is crotch droppings. Oh, let that, God. Let that inform you on how these people see children. Oh. Yes. So, so that means I haven't been on the most extreme online spaces yet, if I haven't heard this one. Don't go looking. These people are not... They may be good people under other circumstances, but when it comes to that particular discussion, they are not good people, and they have some truly awful things to say about the existence of children and the people who have children. Mm -hmm. It is one of the ugliest extremist spaces I think I've ever encountered, and I've encountered some pretty ugly spaces. Marara, you may not nibble on that cable. Oh, no. Cables Why did they kittens. do this? I've heard other people say the, the cat ate my cable. Is it, is it tasty? Is it? No, it's the string. Uh, it's it's the fact that it looks and behaves like a string, because in a way it is. That's mm -hmm. what it is. Cats chew on cables because it's like string, and string is attractive because it often wiggles like snakes or mice tails or grass or whatever. Hmm. It's it's mm -hmm. a natural outcropping of their hunting instincts. It's just that. In terms of actual cables, it can be uh, actively bad for the cat should they bite through an electrical cable, for example. And it's certainly not good for your cables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, our preferred method of discipline in this household, which arose uh, due to the uh, personality of a previous cat, is to hit them in the face with a quick squirt from a compressed air can. The kind that is typically used to clean out electronics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you told me about um, this. Yes, um, 
the previous ragdoll, Helios, who was not truly a ragdoll in the purebred sense, but had all the appearances and characteristics of a ragdoll breed cat. Uh, one of those characteristics is a, a liking for water. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, many cat parents will tell you, you know, to keep a bottle of water and spray the cat. Well, that didn't work on Helios because he liked it. So that was where we developed the, the can of, of air. And since this is a very electronics-oriented household, cans of air are not hard to come by. And it is, in my opinion, a little bit better than water also because you don't have to have any concern whatsoever about something getting wet that shouldn't or leaving droplets of water somewhere. Mm -hmm. And at least here in the States, many cans of air are also treated with a particular scent in order to uh, prevent people trying to huff the can. Mm. And I think that also has an effect on the cat. What would it do for you if you huffed a, a can of compressed air? I'd be darned if I know, but I know people try it. Okay. All right. I mean, I don't suppose it's any weirder than people huffing uh, ditto ink or markers. Wow. It, people will do some strange things to get to try to get high. I've never understood most of them, and my firm opinion is that as long as you do the thing and it doesn't affect me, I don't care what you do. It's when you start affecting me that it's a problem. Yeah, it's just things I hadn't heard about. But yeah, cans of, at least here in the United States, cans of compressed air are often treated with a bad smelling gas in order to prevent people doing strange things with them. Um, Jana has got to the point where all I have to do is pick up the can of air and she will stop doing what she's doing and run off a couple of feet. But that is because she is an extremely mischievous little kitten. <laughs> and she has learned. Um... And I do think for Jana and possibly some of the rest of our cats, the sound that a can of air makes when you squirt it is reminiscent of a hiss. I think that may also have an effect on their reaction to it. I see. Like, here's this sudden blast in the face. It doesn't smell good and somebody just hissed at me. Mm -hmm. so. Yep. You want to talk about literature now? All right. Let's see. The author I have picked to introduce you to this week is Mercedes Lackey. She is most commonly known for a vast and sprawling series referred to as the Valdemar series after the location where most of the stories take place. She's been writing books in Valdemar for years. Uh, let me see, I believe some of the earliest are the late 80s, since, since the late 80s at least. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe the first published was the trilogy, most of them come in trilogies, uh, the trilogy known as the Arrows Trilogy which has as its lead character a young girl from an extremely repressive subculture who is discovered by a telepathic horse 
and carried off to the capital in order to become an, in, an extremely important person. Which, when you look at it that way, is a really silly summary. Oh, I love uh, it. It ain't silly. Uh, but, but yes, the, the two most significant elements of the Valdemar series as a whole is the existence of magical horse-like creatures known as companions in Valdemar who choose those in the country who carry what is referred to as mind magic, essentially psychic powers of a variety of different sorts, and bear them off to the capital capital to be trained as functionally uh, Texas Rangers. Mm. Um, they're trained in the use of their abilities, but they are also trained to serve as roving justices, to lead small armies, to root out dangerous animals, to serve as spies. Um, many of the specific things that any given herald might undertake are predicated explicitly and specifically on their mind magic. Um, it is made quite clear in a number of the books that the relevance is not how powerful your mind magic might happen to be. There are there are characters who who are quite useful, wield quite a bit of power, whose mind magic is is fairly limited. They can, you know, they can speak telepathically to people a mile away, mm -hmm. uh, less than a mile, that kind of thing. Um, but that makes them no less heralds. It makes them no less important. And you're told fairly early on that. Part of the reason for doing this was to find some way to maintain a cultural awareness of being good to people, of taking care of each other, and of supporting the tenant that when the country was founded, they chose to enshrine as the most important which is there is no one true way. I like uh, this government. Who who's in the government? Well, it is a monarchy. It is ruled by by a king or a queen. And uh it wasn't until quite recently actually in terms of of book publication that we were given any books that actually detailed the founding of the country. Um some 1500 years ago and it links in with um, several trilogies that um, came much earlier in the publication timeline but much later in the stories timeline wherein there is an enormous eastern empire which is not entirely benevolent and relies very heavily on the sort of magic that has not appeared in Valdemar for some time and at least according to this super prequel trilogy, um, it has been not entirely benevolent for quite a long time. And the founders of our country of Valdemar fled that country mm -hmm. for a number of reasons which seemed good to them at the time, including that the government of the Eastern Empire was abusing the heck out of some magical beings. And the founder, Baron Valdemar, 
had a quite assorted group of people and they fled to a land that had people already there that they did not wish to actively displace and certainly didn't wish to piss off if they could help it. And so he prayed to his gods to help him find a way to rein in abuses, monitor people for abuses, keep his people organized while they were spreading out over the land and keep the allow them to incorporate different cultures and groups without anybody feeling neglected and the response of the gods was to present him with three spirits in the form of horses which then chose by means of a magical psychic bond the king his heir and his herald and since Typically in a country you can only have one king and one heir. The group became known as the Heralds. And there are occasions in the books, and these are lampshaded, where the Heralds do in fact act as Heralds. They read people's armory, they, they introduce things, people, that kind of thing. But no, for the most part, they, they serve in all kinds of, of ways. The majority of the books feature as their central character a new herald, someone who has just been chosen. Uh, in many cases you are presented with about half a book's worth of what this person's life was like before they were chosen. It's not always awful, it's not always great, and because a chosen always has psychic powers, quite frequently those powers are making trouble for them one way or another. And so, in many ways, these books have enormous appeal to young adults, to young teenagers, because those are the characters that are featured most heavily. People who are 12, 13, 14, and the books will cover their growing up as they go through the schooling at the Collegium. There is a quintet of books that covers the founding of the Collegium, so the Books cover quite a lot of Valdemar's history, and you can watch it grow and evolve uh, both politically and geographically and culturally. I don't think there is a recommended reading order. Um, I don't actually know how many books there are. There are a lot of trilogies. There are a lot of books. Some of them are linked together by characters in the story. Others are merely linked together by virtue of being in Valdemar. I think it would be just fine to read them in storyline order, but I think it's also equally fine to read them in publication order. And of course, if you read them in publication order, you can watch the evolution of her writing as a storyteller, which I think is quite good. Um... She is also very well known for the fact that the second trilogy of Valdemar is, uh, it's set sometime, quite a bit of time before Arrows, and features as its main character an openly gay character. He is both openly gay and no, his relationships both uh, sexual and otherwise, are a significant element of his story in the same way that 
relationships between heterosexual people would be. Mm, uh, not like uh, Dumbledore. No. Whose relationships didn't matter to the story, apparently. Vaniel's relationships matter very much to the story. Um, it is true that his father does not approve of his leanings, does not approve of his sexuality. Um, it is also true that there are other folk within the story who don't give a flying. What they are concerned about is that Vaniel is happy, and when he becomes chosen after a grievous magical accident in the first book, there are, again, other heralds who don't really approve of his sexuality and heralds that don't care. And so, in my opinion, Vaniel Ashkevron is one of the most realistically treated gay characters in fantasy fiction. And those books were published in 1989. Mm -hmm. So quite a considerable amount of time before the, the kind of widespread acceptance or awareness of homosexuality was a thing. There was this trilogy of books that showed young gay men that yes there are people who are going to dislike you for this and they're going to say terrible things and there are people who aren't going to care and there are people who are going to see you for what you truly are mm -hmm. and you can still be a good and worthwhile and powerful person regardless of that that it is irrelevant and while I don't know that I want to say that she goes to some lengths it is made clear in the trilogy that Vanuel's sexuality has zero bearing on his ability his abilities as a herald or his talent as a herald mm -hmm. his king and queen don't care it doesn't matter what matters is can he do the job and as a matter of fact part of the problem is that he can do the job all the jobs and he's not very good at saying no uh, there, there are a couple of scenes where it's made quite clear that he has run himself ragged and that he has a truly intense uh, guilt complex. And that that guilt complex doesn't necessarily have anything to do, again, with his being gay. It is a part of his personality, entirely unlinked to whether he prefers to sleep with boys or girls. And that's the thing that keeps him from saying no? It's one of them, yes. Um, one of the things that it's made quite clear in all the Valdemar books is that part of the training for a herald tends to instill a... It tends to kind of instill this, not quite guilt complex, but a fierce loyalty and almost all of the characters, all the heralds, will put other people's safety, other people's health, the country, before their own. Almost without thinking about it. None of them are particularly good at saying no if they think there's a circumstance that they can affect or improve. Mm -hmm. And they will absolutely run themselves ragged. They will die. They will do whatever it takes. They will place themselves between danger and whomever almost as a matter of course, without thinking about it. 
But it's also made fairly clear in the books that one of the reasons they do this and one of the reasons they can do this is because as a herald, you are never alone. Even if other heralds turn on you, even if you are alone in a foreign country as a spy and you think you are about to be caught, even if you hate yourself, your companion will always be there, will always care. Oh, the horse. Right. Mm. That, that you are not alone, that you are not expected to bear these burdens alone. Your, your companion may tell you off if you get up to certain kinds of shenanigans. But they will never repudiate you. They will never abandon you. The few times that a companion has abandoned their herald are treated as extremely serious incidents. And in at least one case, the companions looked at the aftermath and went, that was not the way we should have handled that. That was a mm -hmm. mistake. We should have done this differently. And they do. They change the way that they handle certain things. Uh, however... As interesting as Valdemar can be, it's far from the only thing Mercedes Lackey has written. She has written a considerable number of books of what's generally referred to now as urban fantasy, including a long series called Bedlam's Bard that basically, what if elves were real and lived in the modern world? How would they interact with the modern world? What would that change? Um, and in the case of uh, several of these books, what she decided would happen is that some of these elves would get involved in NASCAR racing. Of course. What about Formula uh, One? I, it's not mentioned, but it wouldn't surprise me. Okay. Uh, there, there's a considerable... Uh, that much is made of their allergy to cold iron and how that meant that they uh, decided to create lighter cars that didn't use iron and focus on aluminum and plastic and such. Um, the racing itself is not really relevant to the story, except insofar as it employs some of these elves and humans, and that's how they interact with the modern world. There's also a trilogy plus a half a dozen short stories of a witch who gets involved in some extremely uh, interesting things including someone who's attempting to resurrect one of the ancient Aztec gods who aren't particularly nice and I'm not going to try to pronounce the name because I'll screw it up hmm. um but just as with Vaniel as gay, these particular books present a character type that was not generally looked well upon at the time. In this case, a person who openly practices paganism or Wicca and presents them as the protagonist and a pos positive character. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also a series called The Heirs of Alexandria, which falls back in history quite a bit of time and connects to Venetian history and magic. There are, as far as I know, no books that she has published that don't involve magic in some way, which is pretty much what defines all of them as fantasy. Mm -hmm. Let's see. I mean, there's, her bibliography is absolutely enormous. 
there's the Secret World Chronicle, which is superhero fiction and was spun out of her involvement with the MMO City of Heroes, which, mm-hmm. uh, when that was driven to destruction, and that's a whole other, di- that's a rant you don't want me to get started on, but when yeah, it was driven feelings. to discussion, to, to destruction, she was instrumental in our, the fandom's attempts to acquire the IP so that we could rebuild it somewhere else. And um, you did, right? You were telling me about this one. Not time. exactly. Or you, at least you still managed to use it. The, the game is still extant in a very underground kind of way, but not in any legal sense. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, we are, we have been able, I think it's probably fair to say that the biggest reason that the rogue servers still exist for City of Heroes has to do with the fact that NCSoft doesn't think it's worth their while to spend the money to come after us. Mm-hmm. There's not enough of us. There's just not enough of us. Uh, but that's a story I can tell another time. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's the Secret World Chronicle. There's the Elemental Masters series, which is set during the early 20th century, the the end of the Regency era, the beginning of the Edwardian era, and respin various fairy tales. Um, and as she wrote more and more of those, they began to be interconnected. And characters from one would show up in another. Uh, I quite like them. They're they're very good. Uh, there's the Tales of the Five Hundred Kingdoms, which is set in a world space where uh, not only do fairy tales more or less exist, the tales themselves are woven into a fabric of magic known as the tradition, which when the tradition encounters a set of circumstances that resembles the beginning of a traditional fairy tale or body song or half a dozen other things will attempt to continue to twist those circumstances to force that tale to play out in real life or as real a life as you get in a fantasy world Hmm. Uh, which has some interesting effects because the fairy godmothers of this universe frequently don't want the bad tales to be permitted to happen. They can cause a lot of unhappiness. They will almost certainly cause death. If you go back and read the original versions of many of our beloved fairy tales, the ones that were collected by the Brothers Grimm and the like, most of them aren't very nice. Nope, nope. They don't end well. Or if they do, they get there through a lot of extremely painful things. Uh, there's a reason Disneyfied is a term. Yeah, you don't want to watch on the screen how the uh, the wolf's belly gets uh, ripped. Right. Well, and you don't you especially don't want to do that when you're attempting to sell animated movies to young children. Mm-hmm. And at least here in the United States, anything animated is even now, still persistently deemed as being for kids, The Simpsons notwithstanding. Yeah. Um, There's also the Dragon Jousters series, which I quite love, and lives in a pseudo-Egyptian world where there are dragons. They're not nearly as clever as Anne McCaffrey's dragons, uh, but they can be uh, emotionally bonded in the way we think of cats emotionally bonding in the real world. And it does some quite interesting things. Not 
not as fond of the way that one ended. I feel like she didn't quite know where she was going. But the first three books, I think, are, are very, very good examples of, of what you can do with alternate universes. Uh, there's a different set of elven books in an alternate universe that personifies in a very deep way uh, evil and darkness. Um, but also does so in a very interesting way. Um, and I don't think I want to give away too much about that one because I think it's really, really good. Like, she's just, there's so much that she has written. She has been published in quite a few of the Sword and Sorceress anthologies, which if you're first dipping your toe into fantasy, is those, those anthologies are a fantastic place to start. You will find a number of very good authors who either got their start there or simply published their random little stories in it. Um, along with Dark Over, which I'll get into in uh, another entry. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's She has a vast array of things that she has published. Um Many of her books also involve intelligent or semi-intelligent birds of some sort. She is known as a wild raptor rehabilitator and a parrot lover, and therefore these feature in her books. Uh, one of the other cultures in her Valdemar books has is not quite a corollary to the companions, uh, a group of birds known as bond birds, which are connected to her functional equivalent of American Indians. Mm, uh, mm -hmm. And some of them are, are very, very clever indeed. And, but to tell you more would be to spoil a lot of the really fun things that happen. Let's see, what else? She's also well known for her good interactions with fans. There have been times in the past where that didn't go as well and in many cases this can be traced to certain specific events uh, there was a long period of time for example where her official stance was that fan fiction of her work was not permitted oh, and if okay. you do a little bit of digging around what you discover is that this was predicated on an event that occurred with Marion Zimmer Bradley where a fan attempted to sue Marion Zimmer Bradley claiming that uh, uh, that Bradley had stolen some of that fan's writing. Mm. And it had, that whole affair in 92 had an enormous effect on fan fiction perception, on fan interactions, and on the books that were being written and published at the time. Quite a few authors at the time basically came down very, very hard on fan fiction because there was that concern. There was that fear, not that they would accidentally copy, but that the interactions would generate more lawsuits. And contrary to popular belief, most authors don't actually make vast amounts of money. They <laughs> can't afford these lawsuits. And it's always disheartening to discover that someone you thought liked your work is now going to be horrible to you because they think you've stolen from them or vice versa. 
Yeah, discouraging, um, yeah. Right. Uh, the rise of things like the Archive of Our Own and Creative Commons has led over the last 20 or so years to a considerable loosening of those strictures on the part of many authors. And it's also true that in many ways a lot of us didn't really listen to them, but it has become a staple in fandom, especially fantasy fandom, that you may write your fan fiction all you like, but you do not show it to them. You do not mention it to them. Yeah, you course. will respect their desire to come up with their own ideas, to not have that interference or that interaction. You especially don't go to them and go, I've had this idea, will you write it? Because that is all kinds of rude in about six different ways. Mm. But, you yeah. know, you, you respect their desire to be separated in a legal sense from the things we get up to as fans. Mm -hmm. um, you are perfectly welcome to go to them and say, I love your, your work so much. I find it inspiring. Um, that's perfectly welcome. But to go up to them and say, I've written this story based in your world. I want you to read it. No, do not. That is, that is utterly unacceptable and will get everybody in all kinds of trouble. We don't want the authors to feel pressed once again to tell us we can't do these things because we know we're going to ignore them and it's just going to be a disaster all around mm -hmm. and we don't want to lose that interaction either as we've discussed in previous episodes the interaction between the creators of a fantasy or science fiction realm and their fans is really important and we don't want our authors to draw back from that we want them to know that they're loved we want them to know that they are treasured. We want to be able to go to panels with them and ask them questions about their work and get, you know, wicked grins and hints and <laughs> all of these kinds of things. We want that. And so particularly if you are looking for fantasy books written by a female author, if you are looking for fantasy books which feature strong female characters, whatever your definition of strong is, <laughs> you're probably going to find them in Mercedes Lackey. Uh, one way or the other, some characters, some of the female characters are strong because they can take a sword and split you in half with it. Some of them are strong because they are the emotional support for really significant characters. Mm -hmm. There's all different kinds of both masculine and feminine strength featured in her works. A strong thread is the need to rely on one another, to be supportive of one another, and not attempt to handle things by yourself. Uh, and that if you do and it all goes to pieces, well, there will be people around who will help you try to clean it up and will probably scold you for trying to take on too much, and things will come out all right. It does not, she has never shied away from the fact that bad things happen to good people. And that sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. But don't ever give up trying. Mm -hmm. I have kept open, since you mentioned Vanuel, a wiki page about him. And it, the second sentence is, he is hailed throughout Valdemar as the greatest herald mage in history. Mm -hmm. She made the greatest herald mage gay. Mm-hmm. She that is very did. cool. She and she didn't did. include a horrible punishment for his sexuality the way um, some other authors have 
Um, I think that could possibly be debated a little bit because of the way that he came into his powers. But is there an equivalent of AIDS, like a disease no, or a, no. a curse? On no, these there people? is not. Um, but it's also true to say that the way that he came into his powers could have occurred to a heterosexual person as well. Mm -hmm. The way that he came into his powers was predicated more on the fact of the relationship than on the genders involved in the relationship. So while it's possible to look at it and twist it and go, oh, he's being punished for being gay, it's also possible to look at it and go, what are you on? He was being punished because he blindly followed the person he was in love with. Has nothing to do with his gayness. Yeah. Um, but yes, Faniel is an exceptionally powerful character when he comes into his powers, and stories of him and his effects continue to be felt in the world of Valdemar throughout all the centuries after his death. Mm -hmm. He is one of their legendary heralds, and given some of the things that happen in his books, it's entirely possible that without him there wouldn't have been a Valdemar anymore. Hmm. But that's a, a more historical discussion of those books than I want to get into here. Yeah. Okay, that's really cool. Anything else from you? I think that's all we have time for today. So guys, uh, go find Paul Rogers' new album and uh, take your pills if you have pills to take. Go find Mercedes Lackey's new book. Mm -hmm. uh, listen to heavy metal, grow your hair as long as you'd like, and remember to take care of yourself. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.